I know there are certain pieces where Dr. Overly would just love to be down there and not up here <laughs> with his trombone. And that might be one of them. Genesis 49. Genesis 49. In the normal course of things, we are in Hebrews in the morning and Luke in the evening, but for our day of prayer, and we have diverted so that this morning we, well, we were still in Hebrews, but it wasn't in our normal course of study. And tonight we're in Genesis 49. There's a text that I thought would, well, it was just encouraging to me this week looking at this passage. You know, the strangest thing happens, and there's, there are sometimes odd things occur in God's providence. Sixteen years ago, I was in Australia doing, being, the, you know, you know I was there for two years. I was in South Australia for a year and a half, and then in Tasmania for about eight months or so. And during my time in South Australia, we arrived there, I think it was the 3rd of January, 2007. So it was around this time of the year in 2007 when uh, we got, I got news that my mom's father, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, had taken very unwell and had been, was taken to hospital. And he was there for about a week and... I was studying Genesis 49 when all the family were called around his bed because he had not long to live. And it was an unusual comfort to me because when I first got the news, it was the previous week, I was in the previous chapter where Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob to be blessed. And then the following week, when finally he was in his last hours, my grandfather was in his last hours, the whole family with all the, the eight children and some of the grandchildren were all there around the bed. And I was studying this for the prayer meeting because I was going through the life of Joseph. So it was, a, it was an unusual comfort to me that on being unable to be there in person, that the Lord would have me study a passage where really you don't have a scene like this anywhere else in Scripture where we have an extended detail of deathbed scene and where you have the grandchildren and the children gathering around the patriarch to receive blessing and so on. So I felt this strange comfort that the Lord was blessing me through His Word, even in my physical absence. And In fact, providentially, it worked because in His funeral, I would not have, if I had been there, I would not have had any opportunity to say anything with all the children and everything else that were of those who were there. But because I was at the other side of the world, I was able to send uh, a note, a letter, that uh, just details something and have it read at his funeral. So I, I took it even as a positive in the Lord's mercy that uh, he had given me that opportunity. This past week... As I was studying again Genesis 49, I was going through these, these verses. Within 12 hours or so, I, found new, I learned that my 
my grandfather on my father's side had also passed away. And again, it was just a strange providence that I was right here in the same passage. Just heard that he had had a stroke, massive stroke, and a number of hours or so really didn't make it through the night and passed away. So just strange ways in which the Lord works. And this is a tremendous scene, really, when it comes to any thought of, of death and passing into eternity. As I say, there's no passage in all of the Word of God that really details deathbed scene like we have here. And if you have a family, then you should take notes of what happens here both in chapter 48 and 49, and even into chapter 50 as well. I want to read the section. Well, actually, let's just take time to read from verse 1. Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear Ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch." Simeon and Levi, our brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal onto the vine, and his ass's colt onto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 12, and let's still our hearts for prayer, and you seek the Lord with me for His help and favor. God, we are thankful that Thou art in control of every detail, and that every day we have is gifted by Thee, and we know not what a day may bring forth. Here we have before us a man, 147 years of age, and yet still his days were few, he thought, few and evil. Oh God, help us to live, 
to the fullest extent that we can by Thy grace. And grant us help to leave a spiritual legacy and to be able to bless our children and our children's children. Help us here tonight as we consider Thy Word. We ask for Thy Spirit that He may apply. Apply the Word to every heart and stand in our midst for our good, extending the kingdom, saving souls, feeding the sheep and the lambs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In copies of the Jewish Scriptures, you will find that in every copy, every scroll of the Jewish Scriptures, the section that begins here in verse 8 relating to Judah always begins on a new column. They recognize the significance, the distinction of what is being set out here prophetically by Jacob relating to Judah. And yet, as you read it, as you read what Jacob says concerning Judah, you have to imagine, before he uttered a word, that Judah is imagining the worst. Think of it. What proceeds is not particularly encouraging. Reuben, firstborn, is far from what you would hope from the firstborn. Naturally, of course, he was Jacob's might, the beginning of his strength. There's a certain excellency of dignity and excellency of power, but the reality, unstable as water. Simeon and Levi, he ought to have stepped up. Again, their sin, their wickedness, their cruelty, their aggressive nature comes under judgment. And then comes Judah, the fourth to be born. And you have to imagine, like I've said, he is thinking the worst. There's, there's no possible way much good can be said towards me. Indeed, he may have been trembling to some degree. Because when you go back and look at the life of Judah, it's not a pretty sight either. To him, it must be acknowledged that when the plan was to, to kill Joseph, as they saw, behold, this dreamer cometh and so on, back in Genesis 37, it is Judah who enters into the plan rather than trying to rescue his brother, trying to step in and help his brothers think clearly about what they're planning here. Instead, he says, well, you know, we can, we can benefit more if we sell him. So he initiates that whole idea, which ultimately unfolds. Uh, Joseph is sold to the Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt to become the slave of Potiphar. And it doesn't stop there, because when you move into Genesis 38, again, you have indication of the great decline. You have this little almost parenthetical chapter where we're entering into the life of Joseph, and there's a significant emphasis on Joseph, but in chapter 38, we're told about Judah, and Judah getting entangled with a Canaanite, and the sons that he had that are killed by God, and eventually the whole mess concerning Tamar, and so on. So, you look at it, you read those details, you start thinking to yourself, there's no way that Judah really can have much in the way of encouragement to come to him. And yet, what a distinction is here found. I imagine him thinking a little like his, his later son, David, when he records in Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. 
Indeed, the feeling before his father speaks would have been made worse by the fact that now he is a spiritual man. I mean, that has been evident. He is somewhere along the way, God has dealt with his heart, and he has become a truly spiritual man. But the spiritual man doesn't look at his past and his failures and think lightly of them. In fact, the spiritual man is more likely to look at his past and his failures and be plagued by thoughts concerning them, lamenting over wasted years, lamenting over sins and their effect and the damage they have caused upon others and so on. That's what the spiritual man tends to feel. And I I get that not just by my perception of human nature, but again by passages like you have with, with David, like I've quoted, where David has this experience in a number of places in the Psalms where he is lamenting over his past. And he is saying, like I've mentioned in Psalm 25, remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. A man who is feeling the weight of sin even years after they have been committed, even though he knows the gospel and knows the grace of God and understands the full free forgiveness provided for him still, he's haunted with memories. So as I say, get the scene into your mind. Judah standing there as one of the more spiritual brothers in the scene, hearing what is said to the firstborn, to Simeon and Levi, he begins to think, no doubt, oh no, what is it that I am going to hear? What will be pronounced upon me? Like I've said, that's far from what happens. Instead, have this elevated declaration concerning Judah. There are two high points in this whole poem, this prophetic poem that Jacob pronounces upon his sons. Two high points. One is obvious. We can imagine that Joseph's going to be heralded and there's going to be a tremendous word towards him. That we can get because we've read his life up to this point. We recognize the piety, the godliness, the, the resolve to follow God and be faithful in Joseph, but we have not seen that in Judah. So how do we explain this? By what we just sang, grace that is greater than all our sin. The ability for Judah to hear this is not down to God making some preference toward Judah himself in that he had accomplished this or gained God's favor in some way. This is grace. This is sovereign electing love. This is Judah being example of God pulling from the ashes one who will glorify his name. Before we proceed, let me say to you, if you have that haunting experience of things you've done in the past and they follow you, They're like a shadow always around you, making you feel guilty. See here, see here a story, a record concerning Judah that you would never have written. You would only have declared it or said it if it was inspired by God himself, which is what it is. God declares something different entirely. As I was reading over this this past week, verse 11 struck me. Binding his foal onto the vine, and his ass is colt onto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. I just want to pause here for a few minutes. This isn't the easiest portion of God's Word to interpret. 
Many of the commentators will acknowledge that right from the outset. I mean, here's one of the more challenging portions in the book of Genesis. And when you go through all the lines of it, you'll see, you'll see why that is. And, and even regarding this, you may struggle to understand it. But I, I want to just bring some thoughts that I trust will be of encouragement to you. And I've titled my message simply, Gospel Abundance. Gospel Abundance. Note first with me the beneficiary. The beneficiary. Binding his fault onto the vine. Binding his fault onto the vine. His ass is called onto the choice vine. There's a description here of, of Judah who will take a foal, a donkey, and it will be bound to a vine or the, the, the colt, the, the, the child, the offspring of a female donkey, also to the choice vine. So you have this kind of doubled up, the, these donkeys that are tied to, tied to a vine or a choice vine. Now, immediately your thought should be, well, well what's the significance here of binding a foal? or an ass's colt onto the choice vine. Well, there are parts of it we'll get to in just a moment. But what I want us to think about is the, the scriptural significance of, of the donkey and what we understand from Scripture concerning the donkey. So just for a moment, go to Exodus 13. Exodus 13, because the donkey is, was not a clean animal. And in one sense, ought to have been just grouped along with all the unclean animals, and an assumption made concerning it because it wasn't clean by the division given concerning livestock. When you come to Exodus 12 and you have the Passover and you have the, the firstborn, and God dealing with the firstborn of Egypt and passing over the, the children of Israel, when you come into chapter 13, there is this, this law concerning the firstborn. And I can't read all of it to you, but go to verse 13. Exodus 13, verse 13. Every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. So what the law explains here is that the firstborn belong to God. And in one sense you might imagine then that every firstborn male would go into service for God. But that's not how things unfold, because the Levites come into that role. And so outside of the Levitical tribes, then the firstborn son has to be redeemed. And so five shekels are paid so that the, that son can carry on and live his life or whatever. And it's bought, he's bought, as it were, redeemed from this, this uh, position, because God lays claim to the life. And it's just a recognition that this life belongs to God. And the same then was true of, of livestock, the firstlings of lambs and so on. God laid claim to them. They belonged to him. They were to be offered to him. And then you have this detail concerning the donkey that also the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. Now, this is, this is, this is fascinating because the, the donkey can't be offered as a sacrifice because it's not clean. And so you're given a choice. A, a choice is laid before the Israelite, what do you do with the firstling of an ass? Do you break its neck or do you redeem it with a lamb? Now, you have to be thinking to yourself immediately the gospel significance there that God is, is putting in and how it must tie in to what we're to see in the ass or the donkey. 
The ass or the donkey then becomes a depiction really of the gospel for us when we see that it highlights, it illustrates for us man in his nature. He is unclean. And there are all sorts of other characteristics about donkeys that you could begin to unfold about being stubborn and hard to break and how they kick back and all the rest of it. All these things are, are very illustrative of man. And in fact, when you go to Job, you discover there that man is described, man be born like a wild ass's colt. So again, you have this compounding message that comes from God's Word that's telling us something that we're to see in the donkey, in the ass, something that illustrates the nature of man. And what's true about man? That he has only two paths, two paths that he goes on. Either he is judged for his sin, the breaking of the neck, or he's redeemed by a lamb. That's the only options open to men as they stand before God. They either stand before God with their sins laid upon them, God seeing their sins, seeing all their guilt, seeing all their shame. It can't be hidden. You can't escape it. You can't deny it. You can't argue against it. If you're an honest person, if you truly are an honest person, you know yourself to be sinful. And God knows it even more. So that corruption of the nature requires that there is judgment. That practice of sin requires that there be judgment. The breaking of the neck. But there's an alternative path. It doesn't have to be that way. You can be redeemed by a lamb. And this is the gospel. This is the encouragement. That by the lamb, by the lamb, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, there is redemption. Now you go back to Genesis 49, verse 11, binding his foal onto the vine, his ass is colt onto the choice vine, given the poetic language of this chapter, you can see here something of the depiction of man. And amidst the blessings that is pronounced upon Judah is this depiction of man. We're like a foal. He is bound to the vine, to the choice vine. It's not for nothing that our Lord Jesus then selects the donkey upon which to ride into Jerusalem. And that in itself has tremendous encouragement when we think of the way in which he had in mind a particular animal, an animal upon which no one had ever sat, and he sends two of his disciples to go into a particular place I don't know. I don't know if he had seen it earlier. I don't know if our Lord had, was aware purely in his humanity, so to speak, about some detail concerning this, this animal and how it, it had been troublesome to, the, to the, the owners thereof and it hadn't been used and hadn't been able to be broken in. I don't know all the background, but he knows about it. And he sends his two disciples to fetch it, to bring it to him. And what are we told? We're told that if they inquire, if the owners inquire, what are you doing taking this animal? It belongs to us. Just respond. The Lord hath need of him. Oh, I've read that many times. I'm sure you have too. And you've thought to yourself, what a picture. This pathetic creature 
It's no use to anyone. It hasn't proven itself good in any way. Never, no one's ever sat on it, either because it it's, doesn't seem to be the right time, it doesn't seem to have any ability to fulfill its potential at this stage, or it's so, showing itself to be so stubborn, there's no possible way that anyone can break it. But that creature is brought into the presence of Christ. Christ gets on it, and it's tame, it's submissive, and just sits there and carries the Lord Jesus right into the city, and forgotten about. No one then thinks about it. It's just, it did its job, carried the Lord Jesus in his glory into the city. And that's, that's what we're to do, isn't it? That's what we're called to do. Get, get hideaway. Come, the Lord has need of you. Elevate the Lord Jesus. Don't draw attention to yourself. Let it all eyes be on Christ. And you'll have done your job. That's what we should pray for. Well then, as I say, Genesis 49 verse 11 shows us something of this. Binding his foal onto the vine, his ass is called onto the choice vine. Here you have these beneficiaries, some foal, some donkey. And I want us to look a little more then, see the binding. Not only the beneficiary, you have the binding. Binding his foal onto the vine and his ass is called onto the choice vine. Binding, tying it, entangling it with now, there are good bindings and there are bad bindings. I was thinking about this text, I thought about the binding to avoid. In fact, you may want to turn there, especially for young people who want to serve the Lord. Go to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. As Paul gives instruction to Timothy, he warns him, because there are ways in which a man can get bound up or entangled. 2 Timothy 2, reading from verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Tremendous encouragement there. There has to be a sense in every generation of continuity, of investing in the next generation, of replacing yourself, of multiplying leaders for the future. Every one of us needs to take that to heart, especially, especially the men, not just the men, but especially the men. So this is your work. Then verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. There's a text. The young people who are serious about living for God need to memorize and remember and rehearse regularly because there will not a day pass where there is not some effort by the world, by the flesh, by the devil to entangle you. This isn't exclusive to youth, don't get me wrong. But you have to learn it early or you're going to look back in your life and realize you've wasted the strength of your days entangled in frivolities. So you can get bound into things that are of no good. The affairs of this life. It's not saying that you're to live like a monk and depart all the affairs of this life entirely, but it's just it's, it's a way of putting his arms around the... the, 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 the 
things of lesser importance. If you're in warfare, if you're in the midst of the battle, the things that are important become very in focus. And you're, you're not, there are a whole lot of things when you're in warfare and you're in the trenches and you're out in battle, there are many things that everyone else can think about, but you can't. You can't afford the energy. It is not important because you're standing on the brink of life and death. And it becomes crystal clear that some things are of far more value than others. And if you entangle yourself, if you allow yourself to get wrapped up in things that don't matter, you'll lose out. The enemy will win. So that's, that's a binding to avoid. But there is a binding to appreciate. And when it tells us in Genesis 49, binding is full, where? Onto the vine. And his ass is called onto the choice vine. So here you have, the binding is to a vine, something that produces fruit, that provides and we're going to see in abundance, but it provides. And in John 15, it's, I'm sure many of you, even in your mind, you already, have already gone there, where our Lord Jesus calls himself the true vine. And you may want to go there because the language of that shows you the, the kind of binding, if we can use the language of the text, or if we want to use it more theologically, the union, the union of this unclean beast is to a vine. Now, men and women, that's exactly where you need to be. You need to be bound to this vine. So Jesus says in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned." If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. And on and on it goes. So here's the binding that is to be appreciated. Union with Christ. So here's the question. If you are an unclean beast, and you need to be bound to the vine, the true vine, how does that happen? How does that happen? It is only by a work of grace in the heart. It is by what we call salvation, God's salvation, which is obtained by faith alone. In other words, if you want to have this revolution in your circumstances in which you are changed and transformed and redeemed as a donkey, as a foal, redeemed before God and then bound to the vine, you need to go to Christ. Go to Christ. And to every Christian, 
Take the language of the Lord Jesus to heart. If you are drifting from the vine, you won't bear fruit. If you're wondering why you lack spiritual strength, it's probably because you're drifting from the vine. You can't do it on your own. You have to abide. You have to stay. The branches must remain in contact with the vine. If they don't, they won't bear fruit. And finally, the blessing. The blessing. If you go back to Genesis 49, this is really, in many ways, this is the heart of the whole thing. Binding his foal onto the vine, his ass was caught onto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. What's it saying? Washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. The idea here, the whole picture, and I've left this to the last here just to note. Judah is having this pronouncement of blessing upon him. And what is remarkable about the whole thing is that you don't bind donkeys to vines. Because if you do, say goodbye to the vine. There will be no vine left. That donkey will devour it, destroy it. It is as good as gone in a short space of time. You don't bind donkeys to vines. No one would do that. Unless... There's so much, it doesn't matter. <laughs> that everywhere you look, there's vines. That you don't have to be worried about whether the harvest will be big enough. That there's so many vines, it doesn't really matter where you tie the donkey. The donkey can feast upon the vines all day long and there's more than enough to spare for everyone else. And that's the picture that Jacob is prophetically pronouncing upon Judah. Judah, this is your lot. This is what is in God's plan concerning you in the latter days. You are going to be so blessed, so blessed, that you can tie the wild creature to a vine, and it doesn't matter because there's so much available. Now, men and women, boys and girls, get this. This is, this is a depiction of what is available in Jesus Christ. It is saying that we as wild creatures, unclean before God, can be tied to the vine and there's enough for us and to spare for everyone else. That any sinner can come. There's no designation of limit where we say, well, there's, you know, so many have come this year, that's enough. No, you can come. You can come if you find out that Half a billion people had come to Christ this year. There's still room for you. If you found out the entire world had converted to Jesus Christ and you began to ask yourself, is there sufficient power in the blood of Jesus for me also? The answer would be a resounding yes. This is what the cross provides. The ability to forgive in abundance, to bless immeasurably. All who come on to God by Jesus Christ. Gospel abundance. That's the depiction. And so you're able to wash your garments and wine your clothes in the blood of grapes. It's, it's poetic language of, of abundance. You don't do this. You don't wash your garments and wine and your clothes in the blood of grapes. You don't do that. But it's a sense of there's so much. There's so much. That you can do that. You, you, you can have 
The luxury is there. It's afforded to you. This is in Christ. If you're here and you're not saved, you will not find this abundance anywhere but in Christ. If you're a professing believer wrestling over the guilt of your sin, let me point you to a land where there is such abundance that it, it, it can never be exhausted. That you can come to the blood of Jesus time and time and time and time and time again and be washed again and washed again and washed again and washed again and millions like you can do the same. And however many years until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners may come and keep having their sins washed away and receiving the abundance that is available through the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Child of God, don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed with guilt and paralyzed by a feeling that I've come before, I've disappointed God, I've gone too far into sin. There's no way back. If you can run out of the vines, then maybe you're right. But you can't. You can't. So you can keep coming with all your sin and all your failure and just by faith throw it. Washing your garments in wine. Taking your filthy stained garments and washing them in the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you come? Have you? Are all your sins forgiven? Boys and girls, are you all saved? Are you? Are you saved? I hope none of you are thinking about waiting until everyone else your age is saved. No, you come now. And all your sins can be washed away in a moment of time. When you come like this unclean animal, you have two choices. Your neck is broken or you're redeemed by the Lamb. And if you want to be redeemed by the Lamb, you come and ask Him to save you. He will save you and wash away all your sins. And He'll keep on washing away your sins in this abundant land where there is, as it were, a fountain opened in the house of David for sin and for uncleanness. And sinners keep coming and keep washing, keep washing with no dilution of its power. Praise the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. You know, these moments before we close our service, 
are important because they afford to you a little window in which you can soberly consider what you've heard and think about what the Lord is saying to you. If He is calling you to Himself, then I urge you in God's name, get yourself to the cross, get yourself to Christ. Don't hesitate. If he's saying whatever he is saying through his word, then you respond in faith and in repentance. The Lord will hear the cry of the humble. He will save. He will deliver. If you need any help, be sure to let me know. I'll be glad to open the word and talk with you. Hear your questions and pray with you. Lord, I ask that thou wilt bless thy word. How thankful we are for the abundance that there is in Jesus Christ. We praise thee that there can be an endless stream of sinners going to the cross of Christ, and yet there is room for more. We pray that should there be any here tonight that need to be saved, thou wilt save them. Good shepherd, gather the sheep. Show mercy. Let not one be lost. Let not one have to be judged and damned. But rather let all be forgiven and truly converted. Hear and answer prayer. Receive our thanks for being with us today. May thy presence abide with us even in the moments before we leave and throughout the rest of the week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.